For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall be set the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who go my who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We're going to spend some time looking at this text together. Uh, many of us are familiar with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, right? Where King lays out his vision for a world free from racism and prejudice. You know, a world where people are judged not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Of course, you're familiar with many of the lines, probably. How much progress have we made toward King's vision? Remains kind of up for debate. When will that vision that he cast come to fruition? Our new mayor, Mark Sutcliffe, in the last election, he ran on a platform of a safe, reliable, and affordable city. Will that come to pass in the next four years? In 2026, will Ottawa be, be safe? Will it be affordable? Will it be reliable? The current economic forecasts for next year and beyond, they range from maybe reasonably optimistic or slightly optimistic to extremely gloomy. Who's right? Which vision of, uh, of our economic future will come to pass in 2023 and beyond? Once you go looking for them, our world is, is just filled with, with visions and prophecies about the future. As you wander through your day, you're encountering economic and political and social and spiritual prophecies, and yet lots of us wonder, maybe we're fairly cynical, but we wonder uh, which ones are going to come to pass, which ones are going to come true. Even if we believe the motives of the people who give them to us, which are certainly sometimes suspect, it's not a certainty. And that makes Malachi, and that makes indeed all of the scriptures quite distinct in our world. Because we would, we would hold that Malachi is not making a clever prediction about the future based on trends. <coughs> Excuse me. But he is stating with certainty something that will be. And how can he do that? How, how can he say this? What makes him so different from Martin Luther King, from Mark Sutcliffe, from whoever. Uh, the, the, the difference is, is because God told him what will be. And so when Malachi says twice that, that there is a day coming and it has dramatic consequences and dramatic blessings, he's not making that prediction like a politician. He's not giving us a forecast like an economist. He's not acting like a visionary social leader. He is telling us the great and awesome day of the Lord is inevitable. It's like the tide. The, the tide is coming in. You cannot like it, uh, but it doesn't matter. You can be mad about the tide or joyful about it or sad about it, but how you feel or think about the tide has zero impact on whether it's coming in or not. And as Malachi closes his last book of, prophe or his book of prophecy, his last word to us, it's a reminder and a summary of many things that he's been saying. God is coming, and it matters what we do while we wait. 
And during this season of Advent, of course, this word is made fresh. Because as we wait for the celebration of Christmas, as we wait for the second advent of Christ, what we do in the meantime, it matters. So I I want to take our text in three parts. First, the day is coming for the arrogant and wicked. That's verse 1 and 2, the first part there. Then the day is coming for the righteous. He has some things to say to the righteous and those who fear God. And then part three, uh, the stuff about uh, Moses and Elijah, I'm calling waiting for the day. But look at verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. That first word, behold, it of course means to look, means to see something, lift up your eyes. In light of the approaching day, Malachi first wants all the people to see it. If you've seen the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up, one of the main plot lines of that movie, and I'm not giving anything away, I'm not ruining it for you, is that the protagonists are trying to convince people uh, to look at the sky and see something. I won't tell you what it is. See something coming towards earth, and they're, they're going on talk shows, and they're, they're doing these publicity stunts to tell people, look up, look up, um, you can see it coming. This is sort of the point Malachi's making to the people, saying, don't keep your head down. Behold, look up, don't pretend everything is fine. Don't close your eyes. The day is coming. And it has implications for arrogant and for the evildoers. Now, to be fair to any skeptics, the day of the Lord, it's not as obvious to the naked eye as a, as a comet or a meteor or anything else like that would be. You can't look for it like you look for your long-delayed bus, you know, on your way to work in the morning. Yet, because of whom God has shown himself to be, because of how God has shown up in history, Malachi does say this coming day, it's as reliable as anything we might imagine. Now, why are the arrogant singled out? Why not just use evildoers? Is arrogance a a worse sin or something else that he wants to say? Well, (coughs) pardon me. Theologians have argued, almost since theology began, about what sin or what sins are at the root of all the other sins. And there's some, there's like this camp of theologians that argue, well, sin almost always begins with envy. Uh, You want something that you shouldn't want that doesn't really belong to you, and then that leads you to other sins. That's a decent argument. Uh, There's another camp of theologians over here, and they argue, no, no, one of the most foundational sins is pride. It's an inflated view of the self that that, that puts yourself over God, that that says to God that you know better. And there's, there's, there's other camps of people. But whether it's envy, whether it's pride, whether it's something else, I don't think it's a stretch to insist that arrogance or pride, which is another name for arrogance, is a sin that often leads to other sin. And specifically, arrogance is a sin that prevents you from dealing with sin. Think about it this way. A a, a contrite and repentant evildoer, even if they're quite evil, they have a lot of hope because they've seen their sin and they know that it's wrong. But even a, a relatively small sinner, a relatively minor sinner, if they refuse to recognize it, If they refuse to humble themselves, they have little chance of changing. So yes, the the arrogant, they are singled out because it is a sin that prevents some people from coming to God. But what is happening on the day of the Lord to the evildoers and the arrogant? Well, Malachi uses a number of words, and it's all kind of centered around this picture of, uh, of an oven's heat. Malachi says the day of the Lord is burning like an oven. He says, evildoers will be like stubble. That's like that burnable material left on a field after a harvest. And he says, the day is coming that will set evildoers ablaze. And then he talks about how complete the destruction will be. It'll be above and below ground. It'll destroy the roots, you know, under the surface, but will also destroy the branches. In the ancient Near East, an oven was not something you kept in your kitchen the way way that most of us do. 
It, but it was this larger earthen structure that you'd usually build outside, you know, in your backyard or, or in your courtyard or something. It was this round, you know, really thick walls. If you've ever been like one of those wood-burning uh, pizza places or whatever, they have the big oven in the back and there's, there's fire inside. That's kind of the general idea. And this oven would be lit. Sometimes there there would be a place to put a fire underneath it that would kind of heat the whole thing. But sometimes, like the pizza oven, you make a fire inside. um, And after a period of heating, the oven gets, of course, extremely hot. Hotter than even an open fire would be. The the bricks and the clay and everything else inside would would retain the heat and kind of amplify it. And God says, for those who persist in evil, this is what the day of the Lord holds. Now, not a pleasant cooking day, but, but he says the heat and the fire, it's applied to the evil and to the arrogant. Now, we, we live on the far side of Christmas. We would live on the far side of Christ's coming, and one thing we understand is that this, par- this uh, prophecy is partially fulfilled in the coming of Christ. We, we believe Christ died so that the wrath of God burning like an oven might not fall on people who trust Christ. That's part of what we believe is happening on the cross. <coughs> Pardon me. Christ died that this prophecy might not fall on his people. Yet, what about those who do not trust Christ but persist in arrogance? Decide to live apart from God. Well, Malachi says there's a day coming when God openly confronts them. Now, lots of us want to protest. That doesn't feel like something Jesus would do. It doesn't feel like what what I know about Jesus from the New Testament John the Baptist says, Matthew 3, verse 10, about Jesus, he says, there's a a day coming, very similar language, when the Messiah will gather all his wheat into his barn and burn the chaff, aka the stubble, with unquenchable fire. Now look, it gives me no pleasure to explain this. This is not like a giggle-worthy passage. But I also cannot, as your pastor, stand in front of you and not warn you as the scriptures do. It says, the day is coming. It's still on its way, but it's as sure as the tide. It's as sure as the sun rising that God will punish evil. One day his anger will burn. It will be an awful day. It will be a day full of judgment for those who reject Christ. Now you probably want to object object, because I do. That doesn't feel very Christmassy. (laughs) I <laughs> thought this was going to be like one of those Christmas sermons about love or peace on earth or what about, what about the goodwill to all people? Well, it's a good question. Christmas is, is a double-edged sword. And here's what I mean. If you want a savior born to save the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, if you want a savior who does all the things we sing about, then what exactly does he save from? What exactly is the good news of great joy that will be for all the people? What, what is that if there is no bad news to be rescued from? If you go home this afternoon and someone knocks on your door and, you know, they come to the door and they're, they're breathless, like they've been, they've been sprinting over to your house and they say, good news, we've found the cure. Isn't your first question like, to what? What, what have we cured? You know, what, what, what have we done? What has gone wrong that is now righted? Christmas is a double-edged sword, or else it really loses its meaning. Why why was he born if not for this? The day of the Lord is coming. And it's coming with wrath and judgment for anyone who opposes the Lord. Now, most of us know the Christmas story details pretty well, don't we? We could recite passages about shepherds and wise men. But one of the lesser-known passages actually involves uh, Mary and Joseph when they take Jesus to the temple when he's quite young. And there's this old priest there named Simeon. 
And it says he was waiting for the kingdom of God and the consolation of Israel. It's this beautiful turn of phrase. And he takes Jesus in his arms. He's like, this is the one. And he turns to Mary and he says something kind of strange. He says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Basically, this child that he's holding, this little baby he has in his arms, will be extremely divisive. Because the, the, the proclamation, the major notes of salvation carry with them minor notes of judgment. And I know it's not pleasant to consider, and yet I, I can't rush past this too quickly, for it's ex- just exceedingly important. So I would say, please listen this morning. If you realize today that you are numbered among those who are arrogant and evildoers, please don't linger there. The day is coming, says Malachi. It may soon arrive. Part two. The day is coming for the righteous. Now, almost in the same breath as verses one and two, Malachi says, this day of the Lord, this great and awesome day of the Lord is coming, but it will be different for those who fear the name of God. Now, what does it mean to fear God's name? Well, in the scriptures, the name of someone represents who they are. So names aren't just a title that you yell across the room like, hey, you know, you over there, hey, Ben. (coughs) Pardon me. But it tells something you about their character, their inner being. To fear God's name, then, is to fear God as he truly is. You aren't fearing an image of God that you've made up in your head. You aren't fearing half-baked explanations of God. You are fearing the one true God, Lord of heaven and earth. To fear can be understood as solemn reverence. And all I mean by that is it's taking God seriously, treating him as God. Understanding and believing he is Lord God of all. He can dispense mercy and justice as he chooses. In contrast to the arrogant and wicked, fearing God means a kind of humility. It's an acceptance. This is the place I occupy in the world as a sinful, weak human in need of a loving and saving God. To those who fear God's name, Malachi says something kind of mysterious. He says, on them, uh, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Oh, and by the way, quiz time. A popular Christmas carol references this verse. Anyone know what it is? Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Yeah, sound familiar? Second verse of Hark the Herald. So bonus points to you if, if you got that in your head there. So risen with healing, a son of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. That sounds lovely. What in the world is he talking about? What does that mean? Well, in an interesting parallel, both the wicked and the righteous have heat applied to them on the day of the Lord. Remember in the case of the wicked, it was this, this burning, consuming heat of an oven, but the righteous get the warm, gentle, healing, renewing heat and light of the sun. In the dawning of the day of the Lord, a sun characterized by righteousness will rise and shine on them. Now, is it a metaphor? Is it a, is it a symbol? Perhaps this refers to Jesus shining his face upon his people. That's possible. That's the view Charles Wesley, I think Charles Wesley takes in Hark the Herald, whoever wrote it. That's the view Hark the Herald takes. This is about Jesus. That's possible. Maybe it's just a reference to the, to the feeling the righteous will have. Like they are in the dawn of the very best day of history. Everything will be right from now on. Could be that too. I mean, it's probably yes and more. Malachi doesn't spell it out. What is this son of righteousness? What does it mean? He kind of leaves it to our imaginations. The only thing he really tells us about this son is that it will bring healing. 
And if you think of our current sun, which warms our planet, I mean, not so much this time of year, you know, keeps it kind of warm, um, and allows for photosynthesis, it, it kicks off all kinds of organic processes or whatever. In a similar way, uh, Malachi is saying the sun of righteousness will rise and it will shine so that all wrongs will be righted, all wounds healed, all sicknesses done away with, all tears dried, all death reversed, and all curses blessed. If the sun rises with healing in its wings, it means everything eventually gets healed. A million processes kick off that, that reverse and undo everything that's happened. Now, can you imagine how you'd feel on the dawn of a day like that? I bet you'd go out leaping like a calf released from the stall. That's the picture of what Malachi gives us of the righteous on the day of the Lord. And just imagine for a moment, I know it's the winter, but if you're older, imagine you get your knees and your hips and the ankles of your youth back. And all of a sudden, like a young cow holed up in a barn for a long winter, you know, suddenly released into a springy pasture, a place teeming with food and freedom and delight and joy. For all of our pictures and ideas about the afterlife, there are just far too many harps for my liking. No offense to any harp players or, uh, around. And no, no, and there's too, far too many clouds for my liking. Because Malachi says when the day of the Lord comes, there will be a kind of freedom and play and bounty unlike anything you can imagine. Less floaty, more, more dirt and grass and fresh air. And Malachi says there's nothing evil there to ruin the party. It'll all be tread underfoot. And not because all the good people have, have, have fought some battle and conquered them, but because God has acted. You see that right at the end of verse 3? This will be the day when God acts. My friends, there's a day coming for those who fear the Lord when everything will be healed. And this is an important reminder because all, all the way through Malachi, if you've been with us through this series, people are confused about right and wrong. They're confused about what God wants, or they're, they're ignoring what God has told them he wants, and they've been cynical. They've been, they've been outright cynical about, it. does their devotion to God really matters? They've been asking out loud in a hundred different ways, is being a Christian, is being a, a, a person of God worth it? And I think lots of us ask those same questions. Maybe you're asking it on days when your own sin feels overwhelming, Maybe you're asking on days when the sins of others, church people, church leaders, feel like too much. Maybe you're asking on the days when, when you feel tempted to envy those who are getting ahead by selfish means. Maybe just on the days when you feel melancholy and dejected. But there are days when the doubt gets big and black, the sorrow gets high, and you just don't know anymore. And I also get to stand here and tell you, and I get to tell me one of these days, a different sun will rise. A different sun will come up. And everything that plagues us and hurts us, it'll be tread underfoot, and we will go running into the brightest pasture, free and happy at last. Listen, Malachi says, that day is coming. It's as sure as the tide. It's coming. The incarnation of Jesus at Christmas kicked off a world that will end in this bright, warm day. Jesus was the beginning of the end. And more importantly, he's the means to get to the end. How are you welcomed into this new world with the healing son of righteousness? You, you, you come to Christ. <clears throat> you trust him. Stop trusting yourself so much. See, the difference between these first two groups is who they fear. 
In the case of the arrogant and the evil, the only thing they really fear is themselves, or or more accurately, they only really fear not obeying their own desires. Their opinion counts more than anyone else's, or their satisfaction is only matters. So they only kind of fear themselves. (coughs) Pardon me. But the second group fears the Lord. He's treated more seriously than their own opinions. He is the planet around which they orbit. But let's move to part three. Waiting for the day. Because verses four through six switch from a vision of the future to a kind of final last word. As Malachi closes his prophecy, he has one more thing to say to the people. And he names two Old Testament heroes. He says, remember the law of Moses? He says, look for Elijah the prophet. Now let me briefly explain, just in case you don't have much church background. Moses was a leader of God's people during the exodus from Egypt, desert wanderings. He goes up Mount Sinai at Horeb. He receives the law from God. It's where they eventually get the first they get time, they get the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. Now the law did not originate from Moses. He didn't write it. The scriptures clearly teach God gave him the Moses and he came, he came down the mountain and brought it to the people. But because he was the messenger, because he got to carry the stone tablets, Moses' name is now tied in with the law of God. That's why it calls it, uh, that's why it speaks of it as it does here. Elijah, on the other hand, he was one of the earliest uh, prophets of Israel, and he was a miracle-working prophet. He didn't write anything down, not that we know of, but he performed all these extraordinary miracles. God used him in all these great ways. Uh, But the most unique thing about him is he he didn't really die like the rest of us will. He was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. And since that time, a number of places in the Old Testament, they, they talk about the prophet who will precede Jesus, like Malachi does here, they call him a new Elijah. And we're not really sure exactly why, um, but that's just how it, how it came to be called. And Jesus explicitly calls John the Baptist the Elijah who was to come. But we learn here in, in Malachi 4 <clears throat> that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so Malachi tells them, this is how he ends his, his book, remember the law of Moses and look for the prophet Elijah. Now what does this mean? It means... That fearing God in the meantime looks a lot like obedience to God. And the final note of Malachi is not the soaring, beautiful prophecy of of, of the day of the Lord, the son of righteousness. I mean, it's close to the end, but it's not exactly the end. The final word of Malachi is quite somber. That God will either turn the the, the hearts of the fathers toward their children and the children toward their fathers, or there will be this decree of utter destruction. It's like, oh wow, that's not that encouraging. But it's as if Malachi is pointing out a response to his message is needed. <clears throat> you must choose to fear God and live by his law or face this prospect of destruction. And the time you make that decision is not on the last day when you're like, okay, here are my options. No, the time when you make that decision is on this day. The time when you need to figure out, am I going to give uh, generously to God? Am I going to bring right sacrifices? All the things Malachi has been talking about. Uh, that's today. Now, how does all this relate to Christmas? Christmas is a week away, I'm sure you're aware. I've quickly mentioned a few things, but let me kind of, let me put a point on it. The people of God, for hundreds of years, since Malachi, were expecting this great and awesome day of the Lord. They're like, all right, it's, it's going to be cataclysm. <clears throat> it's going to be apocalypse. It's going to be a great spectacle. <clears throat> Pardon me, Sorry can't cough not into the mic when you're wearing the mic because they're they're expecting apocalypse and cataclysm in spectacle because Malachi had told them 
Behold, it's coming. Look for it. But do you know the next behold that comes in the scriptures? It's not the earth-shattering, history-ending behold of Malachi 4. It's a kind word spoken to shepherds on a hillside inside a small town. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be, you know, for all the people. The next behold in the scriptures comes not with the heat of an oven, but with the renewal of God's love and God's patience to a broken world. See, the next behold doesn't have the S-U-N son of righteousness rising, but has an S-O-N son of righteousness being born with healing in his wings. That's the, that's the next thing that happens. The day of the Lord, the Malachi talks about, we're still waiting for most of it, but we are reminded at Christmas, we are reminded by Christ, we don't make it to that day. We don't make it to heaven on our own. We're not simply good people waiting for God to finish off all the bad people so we can just get out of this place. Now we're reminded at Christmas, heaven has to come to us. No one is born fearing God. None of our hearts work right. All of us are predisposed to end up with the arrogant and prideful. And yet the S-O-N, son of righteousness, was born. Why? Again, back to Hark the Herald. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons and daughters of earth. And born to give them second birth. See, the coming of Jesus is the coming of a savior to a world that desperately needs him to a people who weren't ready. Yet thanks be to God for all he's done. Let's pray.